0: I'm Joe Garofoli, and this is It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. The bipartisan House commission investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol has conducted roughly 1,000 interviews and reviewed more than 100,000 documents as it methodically outlines what it calls a seven-point plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election. In recent days, it has analyzed the spreading of false claims. Here's a highlight from Thursday's session. And frankly, there is no idea more on America than the notion that any one person could choose the American president.
1: What the president wanted the vice president to do was not just wrong. It was illegal and unconstitutional.
0: That was former Vice President Mike Pence and Congresswoman Liz Cheney describing how Donald Trump tried to pressure Pence to go along with his plan to overturn the 2020 election, even though Trump knew it was illegal. And the next few days, it will focus on other steps, including attempts to corrupt the Department of Justice, and pressure state officials to do their bidding. Here to discuss what is officially called the Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th Attack on the United States Capitol is the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, Tal Copen. Welcome back to It's All Political on 5th and Mission, Tal.
1: Thanks, as always, for having me.
0: So before we dive into the substance of the January 6th commission, let's talk about the style. This is a show. Has it been effective? Well, to a
1: certain extent, you know, that's a question that every American will kind of have to answer themselves. I mean, effective for whom? I will say personally watching this and comparing it with other similar things that we've seen, for example, you know, the Mueller hearings or impeachment, you know, what the committee has done that's really kind of novel to me, uh, having, and I've watched many congressional hearings over the years, instead of going through your typical format where, you know, you have a panel of witnesses or a single witness and every lawmaker takes turns asking questions for five to seven minutes. And then, you know, it kind of proceeds that way. And you get through a lot of tedious stuff uh, in that mm-hmm. process. Yes. What this committee is doing, and we should say the reason they're able to do this is Republican leadership decided to boycott this committee. So there are two Republicans on the committee, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Both of them are critical of Trump and believe he is responsible for the events of January 6th. So everyone on the committee is like-minded and and sort of rowing in the same direction. And that has allowed them to just have the process be conducted however they want, really. And what they've done is they videotaped all or many of the really interesting interviews they did in depositions, and they're putting together – clip packages of a lot of the testimony. And so it allows them to kind of narrate some exposition and then pull out really just the just the key quotes of the testimony. And even though they have witnesses live, they're not asking the witnesses a lot of questions. They're being very judicious and asking them specific questions that they already sort of know the answer to that are going to get the point across. So they're able to do basically a tight two-hour hearing where they communicate all the highlights of what they want, they get the bombshell quotes that they want, and they don't waste a lot of time on anything else.
0: And the show is, uh, at least in its first episode, was a hit of sorts. It was held in television's prime time, drew an audience of 20 million. For perspective, that's probably about three, at least three times of what the evening news is, and probably four or five times what uh, a a nightly cable television uh, chat show is all about. But there's multiple audiences for the commission's work. Who are the audiences for this show?
1: We should make clear that this, even talking about the style and, and calling it a show, I mean, this is an incredibly important yes. event. The The events of January 6th were a grave threat to our democracy. They were violent, incredibly dangerous. It's, you know, there was some loss of life. It's It's remarkable. There wasn't more based on what we've seen it's it's incredibly important for the American people to have a full and clear understanding of what happened that day. In terms of the audience, you know, I see this as kind of I, I don't actually know what the primetime schedule was, but, you know, I doubt that the night of the hearing, too many people turned on their TV looking for The Voice and found the January 6th <laughs> hearing. And were like, sure, I'll just watch this instead. This is what I was looking for. So you know, people digest things in a lot of ways. So there are the folks who are tuning in because they want to see it live. I would imagine a lot of them probably already believe January 6th was a serious and dangerous event. There are probably few people who have already decided in their minds that it wasn't, which a swath of the population has decided. They're probably not tuning in as much. But people digest in a lot of ways. So there's the audience that tunes in and then there's the audience that reads a summary of it the next morning or catches a clip on their evening news or their news of choice. So it will it will sort of ripple outwards as many of these types of hearings do. What
0: what's the what's the point of this committee? These are members of Congress, they can't bring charges against someone. This isn't a court of law. What is the value of what they're doing and their end goal?
1: Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland has said he will watch the hearings in full and the committee does have the ability to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department so they could suggest to the Justice Department, hey, we think something criminal happened here. Here's why. You should take a look at it. Obviously, and I say obviously, perhaps not obviously to some who, you know, may question our institutions, but the Department of Justice does not have to listen to Congress. That is the beauty of our system. Uh, The Justice Department is an independent entity and can and should not be used for you know, prosecuting personal grievances. So ultimately, the Justice Department will make a call based on whether they think something criminal happened here. In terms of what's the point, when you think about events in our nation's history of importance, you think about September 11th, there are commissions afterwards that look at what happened and put together a report. And the commission will still do that. In some ways, they're sort of doing the report live. Right, this is an opportunity for the American people to see what unfolded as they've uncovered it. And it's one thing to read a quote, you know, in a written report that says, Ivanka told us this. It's a entirely different thing to see Ivanka Trump in a video saying, I believed the attorney general, and then seeing a bunch of other campaign officials saying, Despite Trump being told dozens of times, countless times by top officials that there was no election fraud, he chose instead to take the counsel of Rudy Giuliani and Giuliani was drunk on election night. I mean, they're painting this picture in a way that a dry thousand page report isn't going to. And so, you know, that's what I think these hearings are trying to do.
0: And that's the power. Uh, talk a little bit more about the power of hearing folks like the Attorney General Bill Barr how he described Trump's mindset, how he described what was going on in those days right before January 6th. What is the committee working towards there by by having all these Republican voices speaking out?
1: Well, you know, the hearing I was just sort of referring to which was Monday's hearing was led by San Jose Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. The committee is sort of taking turns. When I spoke with her in advance about the hearing, she said that they were going to be talking to Republicans because Republicans were the one who were in position to know what was happening behind the scenes. One of the things that was striking to me and some of the other you know, reporters I was following on Twitter is sort of imagining another timeline Where instead of all these people you had saying the election was not stolen, there was no fraud, you had Bill Barr, the attorney general who investigated it, you had, you know, the district attorney from the area of Atlanta who looked into a claim there, you had several of Trump's, you had his campaign manager, you had several of his top campaign counsels, all of them were saying there was no there there. There was no fraud. Everything unfolded on election night exactly as we were all told it would. Barr, in Monday's hearing, he was sort of the the quiet star. I mean, they played clips of him. Here are some of the ways he described the uh, claims that were being made, the conspiracy theories being peddled by Rudy Giuliani and Trump. Crazy stuff. Doing a great grave disservice to the country.
0: Bullshit. In that context, I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit.
1: Absolute rubbish, idiotic, detached from reality, completely bogus and silly and usually based on complete misinformation. Just over and over. So what's really striking to me is that all of these conversations were happening to to and around Trump, but they didn't say this to the American people in real time. And I find that really interesting. You know, they were all silent. And so it's it's powerful to hear them all saying this now. But it's also a question of where were they then? And why were they not saying that to the American people in real time? And, you know, trying to tell Trump that he was spreading misinformation, but continuing to let him spread it. It's a real question that, you know, I think American voters will have to consider as well.
0: Charles, as you alluded to, you spoke with uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of San Jose uh, and uh, wrote about it in sfchronicle.com. And she shared that the very memorable second day of the hearings and had one of the more memorable lines of the day. Throughout the committee's investigation, we found evidence that the Trump campaign and its surrogates misled donors as to where their funds would go and what they would be used for. So not only was there the big lie There was the big ripoff. She's talking about how Trump used the big lie to raise an estimated $250 million to fight the supposed fraud. And the committee said it didn't find that any of that money went to an official election fraud fund. So Tal, what what is the committee trying to get at here? and, And why should we care about this?
1: One of the things that they're trying to accomplish is probably undermine a little bit Of Trump supporters' confidence in him, I don't know that that's going to work. If we recall, approximately seven thousand years ago, during the 2016 election, Marco Rubio attempted to take down Trump by calling him a con man, and I remember one of my colleagues, as we were watching the speech, sort of say to me, "Like this is never going to work. No one ever wants to admit they were conned, right?" So, so trying to tell Trump supporters he's taking you for a ride you know it it it's it has not been proven effective let's say that <laughs> that said you know what they're trying to establish here is that trump was peddling what they call lies to his supporters through fundraising emails he was whipping them into a frenzy and he was taking their money but he was not spending the money on what he claimed to be he was lining the pockets of his allies, of his campaign fund, et cetera. So if election fraud was so serious, why was he not spending it on the litigation? If the litigation was so genuine, why would it not mean more money? It's trying to show that Trump didn't believe what he was saying, and he wasn't after what he said he was after. He was in it to spread the lies get his supporters angry about it, get them to the Capitol on January 6th for this big rally, and then make some money. So it's it's trying to paint this picture uh, for the American people of this was not, you know, these hearings are trying to boil it down to say this was not a fluke. This was not an instance where several groups of unsuspecting people just came together and something happened that could never have been predicted They are trying to say this was a clear and concerted effort by Trump himself, enabled by those around him, to basically accomplish what ended up happening on January 6th.
0: Let's take a short break. And after we return, we'll reveal some bittersweet news.
1: You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app.
0: Let's talk about the political value of all this. The committee is supposed to issue a report in September on its findings. That will be when many voters start paying attention to the November midterm elections. What will these hearings and the commission have to do to change any voters' minds by then?
1: Putting on my election coverage hat, there are some Democrats who their theory of the case for November is that they're gonna, you know, they're gonna slather the MAGA label on Republicans. They're gonna pin them to January 6th, that there are Americans who still believe in democracy. For them, that'll be a voting issue. Republicans tell you those Democrats are crazy that voters are going to go to the polls in November and they're going to vote about inflation and they're going to vote about gas prices and their budget's not making it through the month. And even if they think January 6th was reprehensible, that's not going to override for them more important issues. I mean, this is also going to be uh, an election with abortion politics front and center. There's, there's going to be a lot of things. And so to only look at the January 6th commission in terms of eventual electoral outcome you know, that's a, that's a slim window of opportunity, but it's, it's in the mix in terms of what's, you know, ultimately going to happen with this commission.
0: And now let's get to that bittersweet news. I mentioned tall. This will be your last appearance on it's all political on fifth and mission, at least as the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, tell us where you were going and what you will be doing.
1: I don't want to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I am going to be starting a new job with the Boston Globe as their uh, deputy Washington bureau chief. Uh, It's a very exciting opportunity, but of course, bittersweet uh, in that I have truly loved working for the Chronicle and covering Washington for the Bay Area. Uh, I've loved every email, even the angry ones from our readers and listeners, (laughs) uh, because I love that people are reading and and listening and care that much to reach out, and they can reach out to us and uh, and and do so. So yes, but the 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 rumors are true. Uh, this will be my last appearance as oh. as the Chronicle's correspondent.
0: Well, I I will say uh, publicly what I've said privately to you, and I will miss you as a uh, colleague and as a friend. You've been the best partner in Washington that I've ever had at the Chronicle. Uh, we've done some great work together that I'm very proud of. And um, I'm going to miss you uh, as, a, as a colleague and as a friend and as someone who uh, was never shy about telling me I was uh, uh, misguided or full of crap. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> for our listeners to understand, Joe says that's his favorite thing for a colleague to do. That's exactly what he wants us to do. So, it uh,
0: is, it is. No. I appreciate I mean, it, my friend. I
1: mean, likewise, the, the, you and all the colleagues at the Chronicle have been so wonderful. And it is, it is a difficult place to leave uh, and I'm glad we're not you know releasing video with this podcast
0: yes i I would my my first time I'm tearing up on the podcast, but okay um the uh before you leave, though, of course, we can't let you leave just on on that now we want we want you to look into your uh the talls crystal ball <laughs> and uh and tell us <laughs> what you foresee in the future for some uh California politicos with a national profile uh, here, Vice president Kamala Harris. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Dianne Feinstein, your choice. Who do you want to start with?
1: Well, let's just go in that order. By every indication, Kamala Harris will make another go at the presidency, maybe more than one, Uh, whether it's 24 uh, or, or if, as everyone says, Biden will run for another term. It's further down the road. She'll make a go for it. She'll be a formidable opponent in that she will have The name recognition, the credibility of the vice presidency, you know, she will come into it with institutional advantages. That said, she is less popular than the president. And as his numbers go down, hers also go down. She has not yet shown an ability to kind of rise above any of that. Uh, Certainly, she has faced a, a barrage of at times unfair criticism, at times sexist attacks, at times racist attacks. That has all absolutely been part of it. Uh, We have not seen her yet be able to kind of forcefully put those aside and, and cut through it with the American people. And I'm not saying that's necessarily her fault, but we haven't seen it. And so... Even though she will go in as in some ways the favorite, it will be an uphill climb for her at the very same time. But she still has years left in the vice presidency, and uh, we may yet see her find her footing or any sort of, you know, abortion politics are an opportunity for her to try to craft a new image and be sort of the administration's fighter on that. We've seen her really held back in some ways by the Biden administration's positions, she is often not allowed to basically pursue what would be her chosen policy pursuits as a politician, as we've seen her do in the past when she was on her own, on immigration, on any number of issues. So all of this will be in the mix for a future. Uh, I believe the next on the list was Pelosi. Yes. Everyone expects that she will retire soon. Now, soon is one of those marvelous <laughs> phrases that can mean all kinds of things almost certainly won't be before november no way pelosi is ever the master tactician and ever in control it will not be a moment before she decides it's the right time so when she sort of perceives that all the stars are lined up and and i would be shocked if she's not thinking about you know the future of the democratic caucus the future of democrats in washington the direction of who might take her seat? I mean, she's going to be considering all of these things and find a moment when she feels like she is choosing the right moment to step aside. But it will, I would wager, likely be in the next couple of years, uh, if not sooner, um you know, might be in the lame duck, might be early next year. Well, we got to see how the elections go. These will all factor into their decisions. But everyone expects it to be relatively soon. And the fight for her seat, both in terms of the seat in San Francisco and her seat in power in the Democratic Party, the fight to succeed her will be intense on all fronts.
0: And Senator Feinstein, what about her? Her term is up in 2024.
1: It would be shocking to me if she runs again in 2024. You know, you and I have reported on her diminished state and those around her's concern about that state. I'm sure that there are people who would like to see her find a nice moment to sort of exit and and cement her legacy. I don't know if they will get through to her. Uh, She has every right to serve through 2024. The voters elected her to that term. And there are some who argue that, you know, Governor Newsom shouldn't get to appoint another senator. So there there are some who believe that it's really in the voters interest for her to carry on. But, you know, much like Pelosi with retirement coming soon you would have to think that Senator Feinstein will also be retiring at some point in the not too distant future.
0: All right. Well, Tall, thank you so much uh, for being on. It's all political on fifth Admission, and mission. Uh, and I will see you down the road, my friend.
1: Thank you as always for having. Me.
0: I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Tal Copen for being here today. And we all wish her luck in her new adventure. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, no matter if you cry on your own podcast or not, it's all political.